Hey friend, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are another week, another episode of our Bible study series that we like to call the Bible for Grown-Ups. We continue now in our look at a portion of what we find as the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of the Gospel account according to Matthew, and something we call the Beatitudes, these eight things which Jesus tries to explain what it means to be blessed and everything that Jesus talks about to the people that would have heard it then and hear it now, everything seems to be turned upside down. And this is another one. When we look at mercy and blessed are the merciful. Hey friend, I'll see you on the other side. Hey, and with that, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, we are again in our Bible, same place we've been looking for some weeks now. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Tonight we're looking at the Beatitudes. We're looking at verse, uh, beginning with verse 7, specifically in this instance, the fifth Beatitude of Jesus. Um, but again, like we're going to do each and every time, I'm just going to reread the whole of the Beatitudes. This is a small portion of Scripture, just so we can continue to absorb them in our lives. Jesus says, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and there he sat down. His disciples came unto him. He opened up his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they should be filled. This is ours tonight. Blessed are the merciful, for they should obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus concludes saying, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted, the, for so persecuted they the prophets, which were before you. This ends the reading of the word this evening. The beatitudes we're going to study again. The beatitude, rather, we're going to study tonight is, "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy." This beatitude, whether we realize it or not at first glance, actually will we, and I hope to illustrate tonight, will be the remedy uh, for the or the cure for uh, bitterness in our lives, whether. In our families or in our friendships, in our own hearts, in our own minds, if you like, tonight, right? If you have lost relationships because the relationship was broken through bitterness, if you have that problem, this beatitude can be a message of liberation for you. Let's think for a moment, recap, and I haven't actually done this, but this would be a good time for us to do this. Let's recap the background of the beatitudes. This Sermon on the Mount we find in chapter 5. If, um, if, we, if I actually return a little bit to our scripture, go a little bit back to Matthew chapter 3, let me show you the context, the backdrop of what Jesus is actually preaching against in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, uh, go reading to 10. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, now, Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders here, but not all of them. We get that mixed up sometimes. We, we lump the Pharisees and the Sadducees into one bucket or two buckets all in the same group. In fact, many of the people from these groups came actually to follow Jesus over time. Uh, but here, uh, to those whom have missed the mark, uh, he's speaking. Uh, people who have missed the mark as people of God. He's speaking to these religious leaders who've fallen short of their religiosity, of a self-righteousness that their perception provided that if they looked all right, they talked all right, they walked all right on the outside, it didn't matter what was going on inside them. It mattered what was on the outside. They were men and women who followed the law of external holiness and thought that when it came to their relationship with God, that was enough. Let me turn uh, past where we're at to Matthew chapter 23, where we've uh, parked ourselves for quite a while in Sunday school on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. And we again see the background, the context of Jesus, um, what he was up against as he ministered during this time in first century Palestine. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you, you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. He says, you are like a dead tomb. On the outside, you look all clean. You might even be fancily engraved, covered in beautiful colors. You may be perceived by all of those around you as pure and holy and white, but within your very heart of hearts, your soul of souls, deep down in the real person, you're dead. What matters, I think Jesus is getting at here, within all of these beatitudes is it's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside, right? The change that has been wrought upon us by God through the Holy Spirit within the soul of every man and woman. The new birth, something that brings eternal life to bear as a reality on our external life. One author put it like this, and I, I put this uh, quote in here early, I think, because I don't think we'll quite get this, but we'll, I hope to illustrate it by the end. Someone says, a Christian is something before they do something. Okay, The first four Beatitudes that we've studied over the past weeks really center upon inner principles that deal with how good we are before God. How we are ourselves. But we're looking this evening, and we'll be continuing to look at the weeks to follow as we close these out from five on, the fifth beatitude on in verse seven. And the beatitudes cease to deal with primarily how we are within ourselves before God. But they begin to deal with how we are before our own brothers and sisters, the people we're around in the world. Our attitudes, those to those around us. The first four are inner attitudes. The last four are inner attitudes that then manifest themselves 
outwardly. Okay? So, verse 7 this evening, our beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what does it mean? Well, in humanistic philosophy, and a lot of people uh, interpret it this way, they think, well, if you're good to everybody else, everybody else will be good to you. Right? There are many, many Christians who, that's how they interpret this. That's how they read this. Does it mean that God cannot be merciful to you unless you're merciful to other people? Does it mean that unless you forgive others of their sins before uh, that, God can forgive you? Well, not so fast. The Greek word for mercy within the Christian Testament simply means this. The definition is to give help to the wretched and to relieve the miserable. To give help to the wretched and to relieve the miserable. Therefore, there are a few comparisons. I think it's important for us to really understand today. I'd like to do a few comparisons. What mercy really is, how we obtain it, how we commit it, how we get it from God. And to do this, we have to make some distinctions and some comparisons to make sure that we truly understand the words that we are saying. First of all, we have to compare mercy and grace. Then we have to compare mercy and compassion, then we must compare mercy and forgiveness. And we need to ask the question, uh, what mercy obtains mercy from God? So let's compare first mercy and grace. And again, this will take about halfway through these distinctions and then I think you'll start to see the picture. Because at the first, it's going to sound like I'm just kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth. But if you Stick with me. If you stick with me, I think it'll begin to make sense. Often within the New Testament, within the whole of scriptures, the word grace and the word mercy are synonymous. They mean they actually mean the same thing. They mean God, uh, God's goodness, which has been shown to humankind. But often within the New Testament, especially, there's a distinction between the meaning of grace and the meaning of mercy. Grace simply means the love of God which has been shown to the undeserving, us. Okay, God's love towards other people that have sinned against him, his loving those sinners that have broken his law that are guilty in the legal sense, right, before God. Grace is lavishing God's love upon those specific people. But there's a distinction. Mercy is also compassion that is shown. Compassion that is shown to the miserable. Like I mentioned earlier, it's a little bit difficult uh, to see the distinction between um, these two things right at first. But uh, let's say grace is taking away the guilt that is over us. Right? God comes. We don't deserve this gift of grace. We can't do anything on our own to merit it. But God comes and he lifts that guilt away for our sin, which, ought, which is our guilt by right. Right? Even though we don't deserve to have that guilt removed from us, God takes it away. But mercy... Mercy is the compassion of God. That when he looks upon our condition, 
when he sees us for the sinners and the transgressors that we are, out of his love for us, it motivates him to love us. That's that's, that's compassion, mercy. The mercy of God speaks specifically to those that are helpless, those that are miserable. It's another word for compassion, right? He looks and he sees those that are wounded in the world. He sees those that are broken, that those are, that are in sorrow, people that have no hope, the hopeless of the hopeless. He looks upon them and in his compassion, he sees their misery and he works He does something to try to heal them. Grace is when God pardons sin, right? Grace is, uh, mercy is the compassion because of it. Now we need to compare also uh, mercy and compassion in this way. Because mercy in this sense, again, this is why these two words are so incredibly linked in definition together in the New Testament. It's hard to really... Uh, suss out the difference, but the distinction is important. So uh, mercy in the first sense does primarily mean compassion. But I want to stress this. This is what I'm trying to illustrate tonight. I want to stress this in the strongest way that I can, that mercy is not just simply feeling compassion. Right? Right? Feeling compassion, it's been said, is the hurdle of spiritual imagination. The barrier to Christian intention. And look, this is something that we all fight every day. Hour by hour, week by week. I suspect that these intentions of our Christian lives, these hurdles that we put in, our pl- in place in our lives that keep us from truly acting on compassion is something we have to fight the rest of our, of our existence. Right? Because look, basically what am I talking about? I know what I ought to. To do because of the transformation as a Christian that has taken place in your life, you look to the world and you see where you can have and act on with your compassion, and you know you have a conviction inside that says, I ought to do it. But no matter how much energy often we feel like we can muster up in ourselves, we can't ever really bring ourselves to do anything about it. Compassion is not feeling compassionate. It's more than a feeling. It's actually an active verb. It's something that is shown. It's something that must be done. So let me turn here to illustrate this. Let me turn to Luke 10. And it's in the 10th chapter, according to Luke, which we have uh, the story. Jesus tells of what we're trying to illustrate here. And what it is to have compassion on one another. And we have within the story, the story of the Good Samaritan, which you probably have at least heard of. You know some of it. And there was a priest walking by the man uh, on the road who was lying, uh, bleeding, beaten up. And there was a priest and a Levite, a religious guy. And they both walked by this bleeding, dying man. They looked at him. And I am sure within the depths of their souls, when they did look at him, they probably felt compassion for him. 
But Jesus' words in verse 36 and 37 say, which of these three do you think? The Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell amongst the robbers. The one who showed mercy. Right? And then Jesus says the key. He says you, and he's talking to you. Me. You go and do likewise. Right? Remember in this parable, Jesus asked the men, who is my neighbor? And then he told how the Samaritan man was the good neighbor. And if you don't recall, Samaritans were ethnically, socially, politically separated from the Jews. They were enemies. How his enemy came and showed compassion to this poor man. And then once illustrating this with the story, does Jesus turn to you and me? And did he say, now go and feel compassion. Go and feel this way towards the poor. No. He said, go and do likewise. We find this in Hebrew scripture as well. The minor prophets, specifically two. I mean, if you ever want to go and read these, this is kind of the background to both of these. Um, the minor prophets, Amos and chapter, in his prophecy, chapter 5, and the whole prophecy of Hosea talk about false religion that they were experiencing in the land that talks about, preaches, writes about, professes caring for one another and caring for the world around them but the words are hollow and empty. There was a 19th century preacher, 1800s, okay? Uh, he was coming along the highway, he crossed his friend, whose horse had been killed in an accident. And while the crowd of onlookers stood by and began to express these empty words of sympathy about what had happened, the preacher stood up, put his hand in his pocket, and he turned to the loudest sympathizer and said, I am sorry, $5. How sorry are you? Right? Not talking about it, not preaching it, singing it, reading about it, actually doing it. Mercy demands action. Mercy is, if you want to put it crudely, putting your money where your mouth is when it comes to being a Christian. Mercy is more than a feeling. For the good Samaritan looked and he saw the wounds, and he didn't just want to dress the wounds, he actually did it. He saw a man cast down, and he didn't just know that he should get him picked up and taken to the inn. He did it. And, the Jesus, and Jesus says to us today, go and do likewise. Mercy, first of all, is compassion. Secondly, mercy and forgiveness. How does mercy relate to forgiveness? Okay. Well, we have to see mercy that Jesus is speaking of in verse 7 here, in our beatitude, is not just compassion, but it's also an expression of forgiveness. Mercy is the love of God that forgives and the love of God that allows for the pardoning of another's wrong. Okay, let me illustrate this one. So we have Jesus, oops, Jesus. We have Joseph in the Old Testament. You may or may not know this story. He has these brothers. 
whom are all jealous of Joseph because of his preferred uh, status amongst his father. And uh, they decide they're going to go and beat him up and kill him. And then a, a band of uh, marauders came through, and then they realized that what they could actually do is sell him. And they do. Expecting to get a little bit of money, they sold him and expected that they would never see him again. He went to prison after that. Uh, but there was one day later in his life when his brothers actually return and are standing before him. And his brothers wept. His brothers were broken because of the predicament of the famine that was in their land and within his own family. And Joseph, as they stood, his brothers, guilty, before him, right? They were in his hands to do with as he pleased. And what does he do? He actually goes out of the court to weep. Why? Because of the compassion he had for them. The nation, his brothers, his family are starving. And Joseph, because of his compassion, which includes forgiveness in this instance, right? he did not act upon them in the way in which would have been his right to do so. But he forfeited his right to retribution because of his compassion. Go and do likewise. Right? And I think as Christians, we would all argue that Jesus is the one who probably shows the greatest amount of grace in the, grace in the world. Mercy. The most merciful human that ever lived. Because when Jesus looked around, he went specifically after the deaf and the dumb and the blind and the lame and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the drunkards and weak little children. Right? There's a widowed woman. Again, we return to the gospel account according to the physician Luke. That's following the coffin of her son. She's lost the breadwinner in her family. And now no one can bring any money into their home because the only one that could, her son, is now dead. But Jesus stopped the procession and he touched the casket and he brought life back into this woman's life by raising up her son. Why? Because he had compassion for her. In John chapter 8, if you'll join us on Sunday morning, we're talking about mercy. We're going to speak specifically to this portion of Scripture. Remember, John chapter 8, we have the woman caught in adultery. There were these religious men that were stuffed with their own self-righteousness, standing around in long uh, garments with their big scrolls and beards, ready to throw stones at this poor woman. And they say, Rabbi, what should we do? Moses says, stone her. What do you say? And the merciful Jesus looks at the woman and says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, sin no more. Jesus was full of mercy, so much so that in the gospel account, according to Mark chapter 2 and verse 16, he's actually reprimanded by those about him because he hangs around with the riffraff of that first century Palestinian society, eating and drinking with what a lot of people thought would have been the filth of the world. And the two merciless systems... Uh, at the time, the empire of Rome and these religious leaders who felt threatened by Jesus, they unite together in a merciless way before Christ to crucify him and ending up nailing him on a cross. 
The whole of the Lord's life, the whole of the Lord's kingdom, of the Lord Jesus' teaching cries out that all of it is about mercy. He's full of mercy, but why? Because he saw us in our wretched, pitiful state. He saw us in the way that we were unescapably in our sin, with all the wrongs that we have, with all of the guilt, with all of the ugliness of our filthy sores in sight. God did. And in that mercy, he sent us Jesus. God didn't have to do so, but he did, because God is rich in mercy. The Word of God uh, says that he declared, the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. And as he hung on the cross, Jesus, what was he praying for? Father, forgive them, for they know not what he's doing. He's crying out in mercy. Stephen, his apostle, followed after Christ, also walked after him in his own death, He says in the uh, seventh chapter of Acts, lay not this charge against them, Lord, for what they're doing. Please forgive them. Mercy is not foolish sentimentality that excuses or ignores sin. Please understand, friends, that's not what I'm talking about. The only person that God shows mercy to is the person to whom he has impugned in judgment. What does that mean? God shows mercy towards us, not in some sort of sentimental, wishy-washy way, just because he feels sorry for us. Because remember, what I'm not saying here, okay? God must judge sin. God must condemn sin. And any time that you see mercy extended to humans in the story as a result of sin, someone else had to always take the judgment. Think about it. Um... It's the Lamb in the Old Testament. Praise God, it's the Lamb of God in the New Testament, Jesus. The only reason we have the mercy of God extended to us today is because Jesus received the punishment. Christ has been made a curse for us. And remember always, when we talk about mercy, Psalm 85, verse 10, which says, Mercy and truth are met together. But finally, finally, I'm sure you're probably ready to hear that. Finally, there in uh, mercy in grace, there's mercy in compassion, mercy in forgiveness, but there's this mercy that obtains mercy. Now, this is misunderstood, I think. People have looked at this verse and said, well, you must be merciful if God is going to be merciful to you. I think a lot of people read it that way. You have to be merciful if you want God to be merciful to, towards you. This means you must forgive others if you are to be forgiven. And then all of a sudden you go, oh yeah, that does kind of sound right. Wait, wait. Because if so, we're missing the point entirely. Because the idea is simply this. That by performing acts of mercy, you show yourself to have received the mercy of God. That's the point. That the person who has been shown mercy by God, the person who knows what it's like to actually have the sweet taste of forgiveness of the mercy of God, how can he or she be anything but forgiving? How can we be anything but merciful to those who we know 
uh, that are around us that are in the exact same predicament. That's what this passion, that's what this, sorry, this passage means. That our compassion, our love for the lost, our love for the poor is out of a heart that's been forgiven. It's out of a heart that's been shined upon by the grace and the mercy and the peace of God Almighty. And that's the standard that we must have with our own actions in our lives. When you've been the object of God's salvation, it should be that you in turn show mercy toward those around you. And the greatest evidence that God has shined in your heart is when you help the helpless, when you lift the downtrodden, when you heal the brokenhearted. The old saying, I think, to get people to put more money in the offering plate actually turns out to be true. You are never more like God than when you give or forgive. You never are more like God in your life than whenever you give and the more you forgive. And in each case, the less rational your gift is, the more like God you are. But the world's philosophy is coined in the uh, words of a famous philosopher, uh, old, old dude, <laughs> ironically. Well, I mean, he's from a long time ago. But his name was Seneca the Younger. He said, mercy is the disease of the soul that spells weakness. Right? And what, does the, how, what he's saying is, what does the world preach around us? My rights. Our rights. It's my right. It's my right to do this. It's my right to do that. I have the right here. I have the right there. If you were living in the Roman Empire during this particular time, and you had a baby that was born straight from the womb of the mother, if you were the father, you could put your thumb up or down and decide whether that newborn baby had any right to live or not. That was your right to do so. Now that you know that, put yourself in their sandals and say, if you were, in a, if you were a Christian in that society, knowing you had that right, would you still use it? I mean, it's rightfully yours, but would you do it? You could... Um, you could kill your slave and bury him. And that's it. End of story. You could even kill your wife, in most cases, and absolutely get away with it. Because she's your property. And it's your right. But would you do it? In Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, we read a description of the city of Rome, those that lived within Rome. They were described as many things. The very last word used to describe them is unmerciful people. Friends, the reality of this beatitude in verse 7 is that what, the, what Jesus is saying to us, that what we must grasp in our own Christian walk, is that if we as believers do not show mercy towards the pitiful, we must question the bounds of our spiritual relationship with God. And that might sound a little bit strong, right? But I think it needs to be told that way. Because the word of God testifies to that truth. It, has an, it was an answer to the Lord when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength, and love your neighbor 
neighbor as yourself. And what was that? It was the way to be saved. To give everything to God. To show that you're wrong and to trust God. They could even do it in the Old Testament. He said, who's my neighbor? For the priest or the Levite that failed to love the neighbor as themselves, they don't get into the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the opposite of that, that you have to be merciful, merciful, that you have to be forgiving. I'm not saying that. But if we look into our lives, we search within the light of God's holiness in our souls. And we see that we are actually unforgiving and unmerciful. Is that fruit of the Spirit? Well, what is the fruit of then? See? John, in uh, his first letter, 1 John, that's chapter 3 and verse 17, depicts this thought. In John's word, in this epistle, he talks so often about how much we ought to love one another. Listen to the implications here that emanate out of this verse. I mean, think about this. Listen, he says, But if anyone, verse 17 of chapter 3, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, it closes his heart against them, how can God's love abide in them? He's saying what Jesus is saying. If you don't have this compassion and this mercy in you, then you may not have God in you. Because that is the God part of you. And this could be surgical. This is dangerous. This is the scalpel of the Holy Spirit that goes right into our hearts. And this reality, friends, this is what should destroy us as Christians. As we see before God's word so far that, that we're poor, that we're broken, that, with, that, that, within, uh, that, that we mourn for our sins, that we're meek in front of all humans, other people within ourselves, that we're empty and that God has to fill us. And then we realize that God has shown mercy upon us. Therefore, we see the helplessness of humanity, not just spiritually, physically, and financially. No, in all ways, and we show mercy to those around us. We close with a theologian, D.A. Carson, today. He said of this relation to this beatitude, I am persuaded that should the Spirit of God usher in another period of refreshing revival in the Western world, that one of the earliest signs of it will be an admission of spiritual bankruptcy, which will then find satisfaction in God and God's righteousness, and then will then live, be lived out to go on being merciful towards others. Amen? Any questions? Cool. Thank you, guys. You know, for me, as I listened to the episode, as I went through preparing, I'm sorry, preparing for it and delivering it even as uh, we met this evening and talked about it, the thing that really continues to stick with me is this idea that compassion and being compassionate is an action verb. And we, we get that wrong so often, I think. We think compassion is a feeling. But compassion is so much more than that. Compassion and mercy, 
Those are actions. We have to not just feel them, but do them. If we want to experience salvation, liberation, enlightenment, whatever you might call it, we have to give away. We have to give away pride, ego, conceit, all of those things, and instead offer mercy. Again, like them all, it is so beautiful here to hear those words. It is so easy to say those words, but man, oh man, is it hard to live them out. Something to think about. Hey, I hope that you will join us next week as we continue our look at the Beatitudes. And until then, friend, my prayer is that you're blessed.